Amen. Well, good morning. Oh, man, I hope they all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It's a joy to be with you this morning. In the event that you're just getting here and you did not hear Eric, we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 43 through 47 this morning. Got a couple of things for you as you open or load your Bible. Uh, number one, if you are new, we'd love to hang out with you, take you out for lunch, dinner, coffee, all the jazz, and uh, fill out a Connect card. Leave it in the Connect desk, and one of us will get back with you uh, within 24 hours. In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, we want to hook you up with God's Word. That's our gift to you. Or if you know someone that would benefit from having God's Word in their hand, take one hook them up. They're also in the connect desk along with uh, the chairs. Let's see, that's two. Number three, you're going to hear this on the video announcements later, but we kind of want to keep uh, readdressing it from a variety of angles. Next week, we're going to be having our fall membership class here at the incubator on the first floor from 1 to 4 p.m. Lunch is going to be provided. Child care is provided. Two reasons. Two sets of people that should come, I hope, probably, maybe. The first is, if you're new, if you've been with us for some time, you want to learn a little bit more about who we are, what we believe, and what we do, uh, then definitely come out to this class. Uh, the second one is, if you call Store My, uh, Storehouse McAllen home, and you've been with us for a while. However, the last member class that you attended was many, many years ago. That is the Batcave. Some of you may know what that means. The Odd Funeral Home, that's a story for another day. Or the old building on 10th and Harvey. If that was the last time that you attended a members class, then we're asking and inviting you to be a part of the member classes that are going to be rolling out this fall, the spring, and the summer. This is to bring you up to speed on who we are and what we do, uh, our, our culture, our values, that actually you helped shape. So come be on the same page with everyone else uh, for that. Uh, so that's that. And then finally, uh, if you have toddlers with you uh, and you wanted to take them up to the second floor for kids ministry, today there is no toddlers because we didn't have enough volunteers uh, this morning, but all other classes are a go. That's, I think, everything I had for you this morning. So if you're cool, I'd love to just dive right into our time. And man, love our production crew. That, that light is like blaring at me, if you could lower them a little bit. Anyway, with that being said, we're going to be concluding our series this morning on the church, that is the, the glory of God on display. And over the last three weeks, we will have examined the heart of the church, that is the proclamation of the gospel. We will have examined the life of the church, a devotion toward God and one another, and today, we're going to be looking at the mission of the church. The purpose of this series was to refocus our attention on not only the importance and significance of the Sunday gathering, but to remember who we are in Christ. And who we are in Christ determines how we live and what we do. In a season of readjustment and gathering anew, we have had to be reminded that what we do is a direct cause of what Jesus has done for us. And that is what motivates us. That is what brings us awe. That is what draws our hearts toward Jesus. 
It is with Jesus at the center of our lives that we are able to fight against what we have been talking about, that we are able to fight against comfort, whether it would be comfort in our sin, comfort in light of convenience, or even consumerism within the church. Therefore, as we consider our last week in this series, we begin by turning to the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon, who said, every Christian is a missionary or is an imposter. Where you are is where you have been sent. And it is no surprise. So either we are good missionaries or we're imposters. In essence, what Spurgeon was saying is that as Christians, we live out the message and work of the gospel in our every day lives. In Acts 2, we get a snapshot of how the early church lived out their faith and why they lived out their faith. And what we'll see is that the mission of the church, here it is, that the mission of the church is the people of God expanding the kingdom of God all for the glory of God. In other words, the church is kingdom-minded as a result of what Jesus has done for her. In week one, we saw that the church experienced this wondrous event and work of regeneration where they were cut to the heart. That's what Luke writes in verse 37 of Acts 2, that they were cut to the heart by the message and proclamation of the gospel that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ and lived the life that we cannot live and died the death that we deserve to die in our place for our sin and then offers us sinners, rebels, the grace of salvation that we cannot earn. And it was through this and the Holy Spirit that brought 3,000 people to faith in Christ Jesus as their hearts were awakened to the truth of Jesus and the reality of their sin. Last week and today we're looking at reformation in that this work by God is changing the way in which the early church lived with one another and the way in which they lived around one another in their community and in their city. And so as we consider Acts 2, let me pray and as we conclude this series, let me pray and then we'll dive into verse 43. God, as we come before you, my prayer is that your word would be sweeter than honey. God, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would not just comfort us uh, with your word, but that you would also convict us with your word. And then upon that conviction, we would be drawn to Jesus. And that as we are drawn to Jesus, we would be met with his grace. And as we are met with his grace, that we would be continually, regularly transformed by his grace. Lord, those who know Jesus, I pray that they would know him better today. Those who don't, I pray that they would come and know Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to gather and gaze directly upon the beauty and splendor of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so we're going to start in verse 43. And in this closing section of Acts 2, we're going to briefly look at three areas of the mission of the early church. And I say briefly because I want us to walk into how this applies to us as a church, where we are, and then where we are headed. And so beginning in verse 43, first thing I want to highlight is this thing called signs and wonders. Let's reread verse 43 quickly. Luke writes, And all came upon every soul, and many uh, wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, I love verse 43 because many Christians either get excited or nervous when they read verse 43. Some get excited because they are drawn toward the signs and wonders that were occurring as the apostles were preaching God's word and healing people from sickness or physical ailments. And they get so excited about that that they lose sight in remembering that the purpose of these signs and wonders were to draw and point people to Jesus. Jesus himself says it in the Gospel of Mark that as the people are looking forward to yet another miracle, he responds to them by telling them, why would I show you another miracle? The whole point of these signs and wonders so that you would, would be so that you would know God, so that you would realize your sin, and so that you would repent. This is not a show. I'm not a musician or a magician. The entire point was to point people to Jesus. And so perhaps you're one of those Christians that on one hand you read verse 43, it's like, what's the pastor going to say? If it's pointing to Jesus, that's where we're headed. If that's not what you're thinking, then you're wrong. On the other hand, you have other Christians who get nervous when they get nervous because of the abuse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit within the history of the church. And generally, they become hesitant to even look at verse 43 because of personal experiences or ways in which they have seen the church absolutely wreck biblical teaching on the gifts. Both of these are sadly wrong. They both ignore biblical understanding of the gifts that the Holy Spirit bestows upon His people. You see, the apostles, Peter in particular, that's who's been preaching, the apostles and Peter in particular never compromise biblical teaching. In other words, they are not performing these signs and wonders to stir up emotion and take them away from the person of Jesus so that they would be stirred purely by guilt and purely by emotion. You see, in healing someone, as an example, the aim was certainly to bless them, but most importantly was to show that it is God who heals and saves, that it is God, even through this miracle, that God through the Spirit is the one who raised Jesus. So as I have healed you, let me tell you about this person named Jesus. Why does it matter? Verse 43. Why does verse 43 matter? It matters because the bigger picture of these signs and wonders was that Jesus was building his church, a redeemed community. The apostles pointed to Jesus because this was a work done to display the glory and beauty of Jesus to a people that he was calling to himself. Think of your salvation, Christian. Your salvation is not fire insurance. But it is the glorious work of God for you. 
that by His grace that you have received, your heart has been renewed. And as your heart has been renewed, you begin to understand the glory of God on display. Peter in his first epistle says it this way, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In essence, Peter is saying, hey, at one point you were alienated from God. At one point you were estranged from God. At one point you were at war with God. At one point you were orphaned to God. And now, by His grace for you in renewing your heart through the Holy Spirit, you are His. You are God's people. So when we read things like verse 43, Let us not confuse the purpose of these signs and wonders. Instead, let us find ourselves in awe that Jesus would draw himself, would draw us to himself, forgive our sins, and call us, us, the sinners, the rebels, that he would call us beloved. I want you to sit in verse 43 for a little bit. Because again, I know it makes some of you uncomfortable, and I'm glad. Sit in it for a little bit. That the purpose was for the people to be drawn to Jesus. If you're like iffy about the gifts, then let's just consider your salvation. That's a miracle. I don't know if you knew that, but Jesus is in the business of renewing hearts. And as a result... Sit in it for a little bit. That Jesus drew you to Himself, forgave you of your sin, and the sinner, the rebel, the one who was alienated, the one who was estranged, the orphaned, you are now called beloved. You could see how this is beginning the momentum of the mission of the church. It's not just, man, we got to do. Man, this is what Jesus has done for us. He now calls me beloved. Let's look at verses 44 through 47. Now we look to biblical community. Here we quickly revisit the life of the church that we addressed last week. And I want to note a couple of things. Okay, let's go to verse 44. Luke writes, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions, their belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Here's the first thing I want you to notice, both from the text and from what we addressed last week. So think of this as both eh, kind of a review. The first is the church took Jesus seriously. That when we begin to talk about biblical community, we must first begin with Jesus. The church took Jesus seriously. See, as they came to faith in Christ and lived out their lives with one another, they didn't see their gathering as a club. They didn't see it as a therapy group or a social. See, they, by conviction, lived their faith out with one another because they were first devoted to the Lord Jesus. Now, I told you last week, and we're all laughing, right? Like, when it comes to our church, when it comes to the valley, 
We do community really well. Everybody likes to party. That's cool, right? I'm going to say this part once more. Because oftentimes we will talk about community as that's what you need more than the gospel. They, by conviction, lived their life out with one another because they were first devoted to the Lord Jesus. They were in awe of the Lord Jesus. They worshiped the Lord Jesus. They loved the Lord Jesus. They had everything in common because at the heart of their life was a love and a devotion for the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing that I want us to note when it came to the church, when it comes to the church. It is that they took Jesus seriously. Secondly, because they took Jesus seriously, they took responsibility for one another. In this, they put everything on the line to meet one another's physical needs. Let's go back. Look at verse 44. All who believed were together, so they're hanging. They have all things in common. That is their devotion to Jesus. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all who had need. They met one another's physical needs. This is a willingness to use their resources in order to take care of one another. Or they would sacrifice certain things, uh, certain endeavors, maybe even certain comforts in order to provide for a need within their church community. As they took responsibility toward one another, living their faith out with one another, they worshiped Jesus together. Like it wasn't just this thing that they agreed with on Sunday, they lived it out in their own life together. None of this was random as their first love was Jesus. Thirdly, they took the needs of their community seriously. They distributed their proceeds and resources and time to wherever was needed. The buzzword in the context of ministry tends to be missional. Are you a missional church? And oftentimes this phrase, missional, tends to be centered around doing more and more certain programs for the community or events or different kinds of attractions to bring people into uh, the church. And to a degree, none of those are bad, but remember, being missional, check it on this, being missional begins with the truth of Scripture. See, from the beginning of Acts 2, we saw Peter walk them through who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, and he walked them through Scripture. And then last week, as we looked at verse 42, the opening of verse 42, Luke wrote that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that the truth that they were all centered on was the truth of Scripture. And as we see them begin to meet the needs in their community be known by their community, being missional begins with the truth of Scripture. Being missional begins with who Jesus 
is. Being missional begins with knowing what Jesus has done. That is our motivation for what God has done for us. I want you to listen to Tim Chester. I referenced him, referenced him last week. Here's what he says. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word, but a powerful word that takes men and women who are lovers of self and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into a people who love God and others. Biblical community begins with a genuine love and devotion to Jesus. And then it pours out onto one another. And it doesn't end there. It continues to pour out as we live among those who don't know Jesus. So let's look at verse 47. Verse 47, Luke writes, that they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What I love about verse 47 is that we see that God adds to their number. It is God who saves, not us. It is God who saves, not us. But I also want, you to, draw, I want to draw your attention to verse 47 because here we see the early church living out their convictions of their faith in public. Praising God, having favor with all the people. So let me say something. It's going to be trippy, I think, probably. It's not that big. Anyway. There's no separation between secular and sacred. (gasps) There's no separation between secular and sacred. Here's what I mean. Often, that language seems to suggest that what is sacred tends to be holy things, like going to church and your quiet time, that is, if you have one, let's just put it on the table, right? Or the awkward start of the discussion at your MC. Like, that is all sacred. The God things, are sacred. And then when it comes to what is secular, that's where if it doesn't apply to what uh, the things of God, then this is secular. And this is where some Christians let loose. They, they act a different way as they would around other Christians. They do different things. Like there is this separation of sacred and secular. Like you would even say good music. Like, oh, that's secular music. Whatever, bro. Right? Either some Christians let loose around those who don't know Jesus, or they become so conservative to the point where you're legalistic in front of them, constantly judging them. That's all called hypocrisy. I don't know if you knew that. Let's put it on the table. That's hypocrisy, not godliness. That's compartmentalization, not godly living. There's no separation. The Bible teaches and assumes that we are living among people who don't know Jesus. And for the early church, even talking about this, this would have seemed like an odd point for all of life was lived before the glory of God. There wasn't a separation. They understood that their life preached a sermon about what they believe about Jesus. Not simply that they're a churchgoer or that they know I'm a Christian or they saw the fish on your van. But that they lived a life of conviction publicly and had a genuine desire to love their neighbors so that their neighbors would hopefully come to know Jesus. And we know this happened because in verse 47, Luke writes that the Lord added to them day by day by the way in which they lived. 
The second century church father, Athanasius, was writing about the life of the church at one point. And he was recognizing what people were saying about the early church. And upon uh, observing what people were saying, he noticed that they weren't saying, look at the Christians and how well they read. What he noticed was, uh, or what he didn't notice with that was that they said, look at the Christians and how awesome their communion bread is. Look at the Christians and see how great their music is. No, what Athanasius noted was that non-Christians were saying, look at the Christians and how well they love one another. They lived their conviction out in their daily life. I met with an individual earlier this week. He was talking to me about, about missions, that maybe the Lord is calling him into missions. That's cool. Not knocking that. We need more people to go out, right? And it was almost this forfeiting of where they found themselves in right now. Yeah, well, I'm with them, but man, Africa. <laughs> yeah, I got this job, but... uh Got to go to the, to the Middle East. They lived their life out. They lived their convictions out in their daily life. Again, I'm not knocking mission. But the Bible assumes that we are living our convictions out among non-believers, with non-believers. So here are three things to consider that happen in Acts 2, particularly in this area. And then I want it. Uh, I want to immediately direct it towards us and then where we're headed. So here's the first one. Gospel proclamation and practice. See, week one, we saw that at the heart of the church is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. And this is the message of the gospel through the Holy Spirit that cut them. This is the early church that cut them to the heart. But it didn't end there. This message was not only proclaimed to them and by them, it was also practiced by them. Revisiting verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They lived their convictions out in public. They proclaimed, a message was proclaimed to them. They proclaimed the same message as they came to faith in Christ and they lived it out in their public life. So let me ask you, what do you practice? Is there a separation from your convictions and your conduct? Listen to the Apostle Peter once more. Actually, let's wait for that. I'll tell you about that in a bit. Is there a separation from your conviction and your conduct. Now here's the thing, which one of us hasn't dropped the ball on that? Which one of us hasn't dropped the ball? You're not batting a thousand, I'm telling you, okay? And there is grace for you. See, because oftentimes when we realize, oh man, I'm not batting the thousand, I gotta do more, and then guilt comes in, and then shame comes in, in that moment we forget about the gospel. That the gospel was poured out to you, that God's grace was poured out to you in Christ. 
And so if you see, recognize, man, there is a separation. Okay, what do we need to do so that there isn't that much of a separation while at the same time fixing our eyes on the beauty and splendor of Jesus? Don't tell me more about what you need to do. Tell me more about Jesus. Number two, gospel culture when gathered and then gospel culture when scattered. You see, when the early church gathered with one another, they established a culture centered on the gospel. And out of this culture of gospel centricity, they carried it out into their cities and into their communities. It didn't just stay in the context of their home. It didn't just stay in their community group. It didn't just stay there on Sundays. When we, when we gather on Sunday, we try our very best to create a gospel-centered culture. Who's, uh, I'm going to embarrass you for a little bit. Do you volunteer here? Raise your hand. I don't care if it's once a month, every week, whatever. You volunteer. Okay, yeah, everybody's quick. I do. Right? Okay. If you haven't heard it, let me tell you, thank you. You're awesome. You make Sunday mornings possible. Like, you're a big deal. And at the same time, you're not just a volunteer. You're a gospel culture maker. When we gather here on Sunday, you help to cultivate a culture centered on the gospel. Whether it's members who are coming in after a long week or new visitors that come to our church, Before they hear the preached word, they experience the gospel. They encounter the gospel by how you serve them. You're a big deal. Everything you do matters. So if you think you're just setting up a banner, if you think you're just pouring coffee, or you think you're just saying hi at at the door, it's way, way, way bigger than that. You help to create a gospel-centered culture here. Additionally, those of you who are members, those of you who would say Storehouse McAllen is home, a couple of things. When you show up, maybe rephrase that. When you show up on time, you say that this matters. Not me. God's word. You preach a sermon that says the saints matter. You preach a sermon that says Jesus is above all. You too, even though you may not necessarily be serving that Sunday or serving at all, you help to create a culture here on whether or not we're centered in the gospel. If you say this is home, but you don't serve ever at all. Ever. (laughs) You preach a sermon that says this isn't that important. That Jesus doesn't serve his church. I'm not trying to guilt you into serving. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I'm just putting it on the table. Met with an individual a couple weeks ago. They've been with us for like seven, eight years. Never served in the church at all. That preaches something. 
that preaches something. Because as a member, I am a member of this church. That helps disciple me when I see others serving. What we do here matters. And how we go about it matters. This is kingdom work, not convenience work. I will. This is kingdom work, not convenience work. Some of you like convenience. And I told you last week, this isn't a buffet. If you think this is a buffet, you can leave. I'm not going to be butthurt about it. At least you're straight up. Gospel-centered culture, when gathering, does not end here. We create it here. It starts here. It's almost like we're being primed as we come into this gospel-centered culture on Sunday. And then when we scatter, it continues. It continues. Listen to Peter. This is 1 Peter 2.12. Here's what he says. Keep your conduct among Gentiles, among the Gentiles, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That little verse suggests that we are living among non-believers, pagans, whatever you want to say, non-Christians, unbelievers, whatever. That verse says, hey, you should be living among them. If you're like, I don't really have any non-Christian friends, then you probably just don't have friends. Like, you should have friends that don't know Jesus. And you should be living among them. And I know you do, because some of you are teachers. Some of you are students. Some of you work in an office. Some of you hang at Roosevelt's. Like, we're surrounded around non-Christians, people who do not know Jesus. And so this verse seems to suggest that we're living among them and that specifically we are living our convictions among them through our conduct. And that though they may disagree with our conviction, they can't disagree with how we conduct ourselves among them. And if there is question, it is because we separate secular and sacred. I'm going to act this way at church and I'm going to act this way with my non-Christian friends. That says something about what we believe about Jesus. On Sundays, we create a gospel-centered culture that starts here, but it does not end here. It continues, that, it continues as we scatter to wherever it is we are. Verse 47, having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day. That means they were out among people. And finally, kingdom realities. This is where we're going to land on regarding where we are. This is why we did this series. And so I want to be frank about a couple of things. Right? There are some beautiful kingdom realities. Standing before God justified, redemption in Christ, God's word, the accessibility of it. There are some beautiful kingdom realities. However, there tend to be two kingdom realities that aren't generally talked about uh, often. And uh, that is, if there aren't people, and if there isn't money, then there isn't a church. I already see some of you like, whoa, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? Just listen. If there aren't people, and there isn't money, then there isn't a church. 
mission, this idea of being missional, first starting in Scripture, mission requires funding. Like there's no way around it. So we're just going to put it on the table. Mission requires funding. Over the last several months, we've been communicating where we are as a church, specifically with our finances. Some of you are like, uh, what do you mean? We send a monthly video out every single month. And for the last four to five months, I've been giving you the details of where we are financially. So if this comes as a surprise, it's because you're either not checking your email, you're actually not a member, or you're just oblivious to what's happening in your church. Officially, we're living off of our savings. In those videos, I told you that at the beginning of the year, we foresaw that that would be a possibility. We knew that that would be a possibility. And through your generosity in the past, our savings has been incredibly healthy. And as we go toward the end of the year, and as we live on savings, we're able to meet that deficit. So praise God for that. Here's the thing. We didn't want to have to do that. Giving is an issue not because we lack finances, but because many just don't care. That's why it's an issue. I want us to be a church that is passionate about the glory of God that makes disciples of Jesus and loves their city well. Churches are known in their cities for several things. I hope that we're known by our city, and I hope that we're known for making disciples. However, in order to accomplish those things, our giving needs to increase. And I was honestly trying to come up with a better word, but I don't want to. It needs to increase. Those are just some of the giving realities. Let me expand on that. Here's some areas that we're focusing on. First one is development. Last week I told you about the Antioch Institute. The Antioch Institute is primarily uh, our equipping arm where the goal is to equip you in, in, in doctrine. And the purpose of doctrine is to grow a deeper and fuller understanding of who Jesus is through his word. Why does that matter? Because this empowers you. Right? That's Ephesians 4. That the role of the elders and the shepherds and the teachers is to equip the church for the work of ministry. So as you grow in doctrine, as you grow in the beauty and splendor of knowing Jesus, you walk it out in public. You might now have answers to your friends at work who are constantly shooting things at you and you don't know. You grow in your understanding of who Jesus is so that you would have Bible study with your kids. You grow in your understanding of Jesus so that you would be sanctified to be more like Jesus. But here's the thing, right? Development takes money. It does. Whether it's in these classes or it's in leadership development, it takes money. Right now, we have something called a teaching lab going. There are eight participants in that class. They are learning how to improve and be Bible teachers. Why? So that we can do more things in this fall and in the spring, equipping you to go do the work of ministry. But if the finances aren't there, they're not going to be doing much equipping. 
The second area that we're focusing on is discipleship. In the context of groups, we need to train new group leaders. Many of our group leaders currently are tired. We need to train other group leaders because there are others coming in. We need to equip current leaders, whether it's in the context of Sunday or in groups. We need to empower more leaders. When it comes to discipleship, if you've been walking for Jesus for an, uh, any length of time, you know it takes time to develop disciples. Right? This ain't Starbucks where you're just mass producing them. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just, it don't work that way. Another area within discipleship is counseling. Man, I love, I am so thankful for our church. I really am. And there are these seasons where I get overwhelmed, not emotionally. I'm talking with my calendar regarding counseling. I need to equip other individuals and couples to help take on some very basic counseling skills. Because sometimes when I get to some couples or some individuals, it has been a good length of time and some stuff has gone down. I'd like to be there before that stuff goes down, which means others need to be developed to handle some of that. Under discipleship, we also have care. In 2020 and even this year, through your generosity, we took care of families, medical bills, utilities, groceries. We did all that. That is that one line item that I always want at zero every single year. The thing is, it's not the end of the year and we're at zero. When it comes to formation, this is us on mission. Man, I really want to love our city well. And I want to do it at least in two areas that we've been trying to. I love that we have a ton of teachers in our church because I love our teachers. I have that, that soft spot in my heart for our teachers, right? And I want to bless our teachers. And I also want to bless our teachers who are neighbors because y'all are in the same boat. We literally have three schools right around us. And we want to bless them. We did that last year internally, if you remember. Many of you teachers, and if I didn't get to you, hey, my bad, I'm sorry, I didn't know. I'm telling you right now, I did not know. Many of our teachers, did y'all know about that? No, okay. Teachers got a thank you letter. Some teachers got a bottle of wine with that thank you letter. Some teachers got keto donuts with that thank you letter. And it was just, hey, keep doing what you're doing. Love you, you're like building the plane as you're flying it, keep going. They're not the only ones. We're trying to develop a relationship with the McAllen Pregnancy Center where we are donating. We want to donate diapers. We want to be available for counseling because many dads want to bail. Many pregnant moms don't know what to do. We want to pray for their staff because they're understaffed. It's all volunteer, nonprofit. In the area of church planting, we keep talking about this. You, Storehouse McAllen, you support two church planters. One is in Austin at Refuge Community Church. His name is Josh Guerrero. Some of you have met him. The other one is Armando Ortiz. He's out in Monterrey. A week and a half ago, him and his wife got COVID. He is the only employee of his business outside of working for the church. He has not been able to work because of your generosity 
him and his family were taken care of. Him and his family were taken care of. He didn't need to worry about his bills. As we walk into the new year, we want to do residencies, but residencies take money. Not just for books, but so that those residents, whoever they are, would actually devote their time to the work that they're being developed to do. We want to coach pastors and planters through Frontera, the church planning network that we're a part of. As giving increases, uh, salaries matter. Just going to say that. They matter. We've already had to let go of one of our staff members. If that surprises you, then you haven't been watching the videos. But by God's grace, they're taken care of. They're taken care of. But nevertheless, the work is increasing. She's upstairs. I hope she didn't hear me. Elsie is our storehouse kids director slash pastoral assistant slash administrator slash taking care of weekly operations slash missional assistant as she helps me contact all these other people. I want to increase her salary. Now, if you don't believe me, you're like, man, you're just saying this. We have a board. I'm not just spitting this for fun, right? We have a board. They oversee the entire budget. So you got beef with me? You can talk to Gary or Gabe. Not that, I guess. There is this brewing here. Let me tell you something. There's this brewing momentum happening in our church. I'm trying to like put my finger on it. There's this brewing momentum through transition where leaders or members who have been in positions of leadership for a long, long time and have been incredibly faithful due to the season or things are going on, man, they're adding members to their family. They're having to step down and take some time off and relax and reset and regroup and get some respite. But at the same time, normally where as a small church, we'd be tripping out like, how are we going to do this? All of a sudden, God has just been bringing men and women to step into some of these roles and desiring to serve and saying, hey, I actually have a big plate. Give me more. Now, that's awesome. And many of us would be like, yeah, that's awesome. It takes time to develop them. It takes money to get them the things that they need. And that's just because they're volunteers. This is simply where we're at. Giving is an issue, not because we lack finances, because we all give. You just don't give to the church. If I give you an event... Here's what we see. If I give you an event, people will give to the event. But if I say give to the mission of the church so that we can fund things like this and do other things within our city, it's like, whoa, I don't know. I don't know about that, but I'll get the diapers. That's cool. Yeah, it's not generosity. That's a transaction. Giving is an issue because hearts are an issue. Some of you are worshiping. You're just not worshiping Jesus. We're short about $3,000 a month right now. And so we're tapping into savings. Once more, by God's mercy, our savings have been healthy. But that will affect 2022. Funding mission means equipping the church for the work of mission, or for the work of ministry toward one another and our communities. 
Generosity is a result of our understanding of grace. I gave you numbers, but I'm not giving you your number. I don't know who gives. I see numbers and I see patterns. That's what I'm given. I don't know who gives, but based on numbers and patterns, here's what I know. Many members in our congregation, and this may be you, have been here for years and have given little to nothing. If you have been giving regularly, abundantly, you've even sacrificed to give all that, let me tell you, thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your generosity. If you're that individual or family, may you hit financial hardship. New job, getting new rhythms. I'm not talking to you. Let us know how we can serve you. I'm not talking to you. If you're like, man, I just graduated college and I'm still living off of ramen, I'm not talking to you because we don't have a single college student in this church. See, some of you are going to be like, oh yeah, that's me. No, it's not. We don't have any college students in this church. The last one graduated last fall. That was like, that was a hook. Got you. Huh? I'm not dumb. And so <laughs> I'm not talking to them. I'm talking to, man, you call this home. You call this, hey, this is the, the church, the community, the body that I have committed to, that I want. I'm, man, I'm going to live, die, and breathe this. I'm going to see it to the end, whatever the end is, whether it's in 100 years or whatever. You're the one I'm talking to. You're the one that I'm talking to. Earlier, I mentioned that at the start of Acts 2, we saw regeneration. That is, the Holy Spirit descending upon the people of God as they came to faith in Christ Jesus. Last week and today, we looked at Reformation, orienting our lives around the truth of Scripture as we devote ourselves to one another and our cities. But there's something that we need in order to move forward and we got to be honest about it, we need revival. We need revival. Now, we've done a series on revival before, so I'm not advocating something unbiblical. Some of you'd be like, oh man, first signs and wonders, and now revival, like, what's this dude talking about, right? And if it gets you nervous, I'm glad, because you're the one I'm, oh man. Anyway, revival is a greater intent. If you don't know what it is, man, read Habakkuk, read Psalm uh, 86, but revival is a greater intensity of the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how we defined it when we walked through that series in revival. Revival is the Spirit of God intensely at work in the people of God through the Word of God. You see, the purpose of asking God for revival is threefold. First, the reason we ask God for revival is because we have forgotten what He has done for us in Christ. That's the first reason when you visit Psalm 86, the opening verses, the psalmist goes on to talk about God's work for him. That he covered their sin. That he rescued them. The purpose of asking for a revival, the first reason is because we have forgotten what God has done for us in Christ. Number two, the reason we pray for revival is because, because we have forgotten what God has done for us, we have become content and apathetic toward our sin. Like sit in that for a little bit. We've become content and apathetic toward our sin. You know you're content in your sin when you say things like, that's just who I am. 
You know you're apathetic when you know you're apathetic and don't actually do anything about it, but instead blame others or blame God rather than confessing your sin, bringing others to say, hey man, this is where I'm going on. I'm trying to stumble forward, but I'm having a really hard time. We have become content and apathetic toward our sin. And finally, we we pray for revival so that our hearts would be revived for God once more. Now, let me be clear. That's not like recommitting. Oh, I've recommitted my life to Christ. No, bro, that's not, no. You probably just weren't a Christian, right? That's number one. Number two, to be revived, right? And its original intent means to be made alive once again. Like there's some embers and God blows some wind and sparks a fire all over again. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, Revival is the descent, the outpouring of the Spirit over and above His usual ordinary work. Revival begins by awakening sluggish believers. Revival begins with the church, but its effects do not stop there. We need revival. Because for many, Jesus is not at the heart or at the center of our lives. For many of you, you have forgotten the love you had at first. And so to to quote Jesus, repent and remember how far it is you have fallen and repent. In that place, he meets you with his grace. Listen to, to, none of this is on the screen, which is what I love. Listen to Billy Graham. This is in 1950. In the late 1940s, post-World War II, in the 1950s, there were a couple of evangelistic leaders who were trying to, uh, who were praying for revival in the United States, particularly on the East Coast, specifically Boston. Eventually, it ended up going to Los Angeles. And so here's what Billy Graham said about that in the 1950s. This has been an age in which we have humanized God and deified man. And we have worshipped at the throne of science, thinking it could bring about utopia. That's 1950. This is 2021. And yet the church humanizes God and forgets about his sovereignty, forgets about his lordship, forgets about his kingship, abuses his grace, deifies man, whether it would be political figures, whether it would be uh, influencers, whatever that means, whether it would be social concerns that are important, but the problem is that you have deified them, that rather than living in the tension among non-believers, you embrace some of those things. Rather than worshiping Jesus, some of you worship science or philosophy or your reason. Rather than worshiping Jesus, you worship your bitterness. You worship your sin. How do you know? You keep going back to it. And rather than stumbling forward, you rather be a slave once again to your sin. You voluntarily put yourself in the shackles because that just felt better. 
Some of you think you're a Christian because you're a Republican. Some of you think that you're missional because you're a Democrat. No. At the end of the day, if your life is not centered around Jesus and your heart has not been renewed by the grace of Jesus for you, then you're not a Christian. One of the ways in which Billy Graham went on to talk about revival was the need for it is spiritual decline in the church. That's where we are at. I'm not talking about the universal church. I'm not talking about the American church. I got no links to hook you up with. I'm talking about us. And that if we desire to be a kingdom-minded people in every aspect of our lives, then it is because we are in awe of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That as Christians, we have personally experienced the glory of God on display, and our deepest desire is to live that among friends and family and co-workers and peers in a way that not only proclaims the gospel, but practices the gospel. And if we're going to do this well, then we must be developed. We need to be discipled, and you need to be deployed. It all begins with the church because it is all about Jesus. So, Christian, are you kingdom-minded? Jesus said that we would do things greater than him in that we would have a front row seat and seeing and being a part of watching his kingdom expand. Where or who is at the heart of your worship? Who is trying to reign over your heart and life this morning, Christian? There is grace for you in Jesus. There is grace for you in Jesus when we come before him. Man, right now, grace is being poured out onto you. As you come before him, even more grace is poured out to you. As we turn from our sin toward Jesus, he meets us with his grace. It is a gift that you have received in Jesus that you continue to receive. And if you're not a Christian, I'm really grateful for you. I'm glad that you're here. Last week I told you that I wanted you to see the beauty of community and the messiness of it too. And even in light of everything shared, Jesus is not thrown off. Jesus isn't moved, and today he continues to offer you the grace of salvation that you cannot earn. He offers you this so that you would be loved so that you would be known, so that you would be forgiven, so that you would repent of your sin. Friends, the mission of the church is the people of God expanding the kingdom of God all for the glory of God. Let's pray.
God, as we come before you, God, I pray that we would come before you humble and with convicted hearts and with broken hearts and with humbled spirits. God, in in Psalm 51 through David, you you tell us that sacrifice uh, and offering isn't going to be what you want isn't going to be something that satisfies you. Instead, what you will not deny is a broken, a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. This you will not despise. So God, as we come before you, would you revive us? We confess that we have forgotten the love that we had at first, Jesus. We confess that we have forgotten the work of Jesus for us, the grace of Jesus for us, the mercy of Jesus for us. We confess that we have embraced our sin willingly, yet your grace still pours over us. So Lord, may we surrender our selfishness before you today. And by your Spirit, may you revive us to fix our eyes on the beauty and splendor of Jesus. That we may devote ourselves to Jesus, to one another, and live in a way that brings you glory in Christ Jesus. Father, may your grace abound in us this morning and may our hearts be overwhelmed by you and your goodness. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.